The following is a live recording of a conversation I had last Friday with General Jim Mattis, the 26th United States Secretary of Defense. Thank you to our partners on this program, Dallas Baptist University and Dallas Museum of Art, Arts and Letters Live. I hope you'll enjoy it. My global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 132. 183. 147. 103. So I have a feeling that your parents might have had a difficult time with you for a few years. So tell us about those teenage years and what drew you to the Marines. Like many of us in this country, I was one of those who got to grow up as part of the luckiest generation. Uh, we were raised by the greatest generation. They gave us a lot of freedom. I think the country was a very trusting country. And I took the full advantage of that trust and also my ability to hide things from my parents. And that involved hitchhiking around the West starting at age 13. It involved going mountain climbing, hunting, fishing, swimming the Columbia River. And it was just the sort of adventure that I think we all look back on and say, you know, that's a pretty good life. That's a, that's a lot of fun. And uh, it's not one that I have any regrets about. So what drew you to the Marines? Well, uh, part of it was the draft. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was enjoying life a lot in college. I didn't realize you actually had to go to class to keep your 2S deferment. Um, and so <clears throat> there came a time when uh, it was obvious that with the draft number I had, I would have to go. And my brother was in the Marines at that time. It wasn't a real well thought out decision. It was simply a, you gotta go. None of us believed that the draft Dodgers would be allowed to return home as heroes one day. We thought if we'd if we dodged it, we could very well end up never coming back from Canada or something. So it wasn't, I'm, I'm just trying to say it wasn't something I set out with an idea that I'm going to join the military and I'm going to spend the rest of my life in the military. That was not part of my plan. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get this out of the way early. I watched your interview just a few days ago, the one you had with David Brooks. And David Brooks said that you have probably been asked at least 500 times about whether or not you would comment on some of the current events and about your resignation. So I'm not going to ask you for the 502nd time, but would you explain for, to all of us about what you mean by the duty of silence or the devoir de réserve? Yes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when you're asked by the president, I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat, male or female, to do something, uh, I come from a family, from a generation, raised by a generation, I should say, where military service, uh, service to the country is both a duty and a privilege. So if asked to serve, as long as you feel prepared, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and you're on your way. Uh, there did come a point, uh, I intended to be there for four years, there just came a point where I thought it was best that I depart uh, I went in, we, I had a very straightforward relationship with the president. Uh, we had a very straightforward talk that day, and I laid it out in a page and a half letter why I thought it best that he have a, another Secretary of Defense. But remember this, as we sit here tonight, there are tens of thousands of young sailors, soldiers, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, Marines at sea, uh, overseas, and I think the last thing they need is a former Secretary of Defense having said in writing, this is what it is about. It has to do with allies and all and how we deal with them, how we deal with our adversaries. And I parted on policy matters. So I think that's enough to say, and I'm not going to add more fuel to this fire that's scorching everybody in the country right now. I think we need to get back to a little more friendliness, and a little more respect for each other and not leave uh, the, the young guys and gals who are at sea and overseas right now or the former secretary perhaps critiquing what's going on. So I just choose to stay silent uh, over this sort of thing, and uh, that's where I stand. I suspect then that you wish everyone would stay silent, and there's a book that's going to be... There's a book that's going to be coming out probably within the next four or six weeks, uh, a book called Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis, 
written by someone who purports to be your chief uh, speechwriter and director of communications. Uh, tell us about the relationship you had with Guy Snodgrass, and uh, will this not put, in a sense, more pressure on you, although I don't think anyone can put pressure on you, but <laughs> could it conceivably put pressure on you to respond to what yeah. is in the book? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point you just made. I mean, there is no pressure on us unless we conspire with those who think they can put pressure on us. I mean, it's up to us. We just say there's no pressure. Uh, I, I think the most important thing is that when you go to work for someone like you, I'm from the West. I was brought up out West. And there's something we call where you ride for the brand. And the brand in this case is the United States Constitution. And you maintain a degree of confidentiality about the things that you have to do in private as you sort out messy ideas and people have to feel that you can speak openly. So uh, I will not read the book, I'm not interested in the book and that's about all I can say about it. I don't know anything about it beyond, beyond what you and I just, just said here. Yes, sir. In your letter of resignation, which is in the book, you really highlighted two areas of disagreement with the, the president. Mm -hmm. One pertaining to alliances and one about um, yeah. the uh, Russia and, and China. Let's talk about alliances. Why do, were, was that so important to you? You know, ladies and gentlemen, I had the privilege uh, of fighting many times for our country, and it was a privilege. And in all the times I fought, uh, I never fought in an all-American formation. <clears throat> and I'll, let me give you a real quick example of the greatest generation's impact on me that was very direct and personal. After World War II, the greatest generation came home and said, it's a pretty crummy world, you know, 50, 60, 70 million dead. And then they said, but we're part of it whether we like it or not. And they started doing things like they reached out to the Nazis, uh, former country, I mean, the, the Nazis who had fought us in World War II. Three years later, they reached out with the Marshall Plan to them in Japan and brought them back into the community of nations three years later after that terrible war. Uh, set up the United Nations. They said, we're going to have to have some place we can talk. Uh, put together the Bretton Woods Agreement. And, they, and there they said that if you're desperate, if your country's in tough shape, there's a lender of last resort called the, we call it the World Bank, the IMF. You don't have to turn to this, this Mussolini kind of fascist if you're running out of hope. There's a way out of it. But one day in the uh, backyard of the Australian ambassador, I was having lunch with him, and it took a foreigner to show me what America's all about. I thought I knew history well, and when he said America made the single most self-sacrificial pledge in world history, I'm thinking the Marshall Plan, or what, what was it? He said, no. He said, after two wars, world wars, both started in Europe, he said, uh, in 25 years, you could have said, we're through with you. We're going to deal with Africa, Latin America, Asia. We're not going to continue the Mideast. We're, we're done with you drawing us into these wars, and you're on your own. He said, instead, you pledged 100 million dead Americans in a nuclear war to protect democracy in Western Europe with NATO. It took a foreigner to open my eye. I'd never heard that before, how generous to the point of even putting our lives on the line, our country's life on the line. So, we, we maintained NATO against the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union rotted from the inside out. But then the first time NATO goes to war, it's not us going to help them. It's 9-11, and I'm in Afghanistan, and joining me there were troops from the United Kingdom and Canada, from Germany and Norway, from Jordan and Turkey, from New Zealand and Australia. Not all NATO nations, but NATO was there said, you've been attacked, so we've been attacked. And in many ways, even against their interest, because they're attracting attention from the terrorists, if you see what I'm driving at, they could have just said, we don't want to get involved. Instead, they came to our aid, and I'm in Afghanistan, and I look around, and I've got all these different nations fighting alongside us. And by the way, three of those nations over the last uh, 18 years here have lost more boys per capita than we have fighting alongside us because an enemy attacked and murdered almost 3,000 people from 91 countries in our country. There is an extremely important message here that countries with allies thrive and countries without allies wither. 
and we need every one of those allies. There's a Marine saying that's irreverent, but it says when you're going into a gunfight, bring all your friends with guns, okay? <laughs> well, if we're gonna be in a diplomatic fight, bring all your friends with diplomacy. You know what I mean? In other words, find like-minded nations, find nations that you share something with, you may not share it all with them, but bring them in. And this is something that I believe is very important. How many allies does China have? North Korea, one, treaty ally. How would you like that for your ally, you know? <laughs> How many allies does Russia have? One, Belarus. And they've got a few problems with Russia right now. Our alliances are a critical part of our survival as a nation, of our democracy surviving, and we need to treat them with respect. In 1943, we're sending the army to England to get ready for the invasion of, of Normandy, of France, to go after Germany. And in the, in the booklet, every soldier gets, every private gets, it says, to humiliate or to criticize your ally is militarily stupid. I'm brought up in that tradition. I'm glad you brought up the word <coughs> diplomacy because I want to ask you about another alliance you had. We're in the hometown of Rex Tillerson. How did you forge that alliance? He's the man I call St. Rex of Texas. <laughs> um, so I, I took no part in the election. I'd never met Mr. Trump before my uh, job interview and uh, promptly went in and disagreed with him three times in my 40-minute job interview. Uh, and uh, then we walked out on the steps and he surprised me. I thought I'm on my way back to Stanford University. Took care of that one. And uh, he said he wanted me to, to be there for the uh, as Secretary of Defense. So I flew in right after Christmas, December 28th, to get ready for the Senate confirmation hearings. <clears throat> Start studying this sort of thing. And I heard Rex Tillerson was in town. I'd read that he was being nominated for Secretary of State, so I, I found his hotel, called his hotel room, said, why don't we get together for dinner? And so two old guys sitting in the back of a restaurant there in Washington, <laughs> D.C., just talking about where we came from. I grew up on the banks of the Columbia River. You know, he's telling me what it was like growing up with his dad was a Boy Scout leader, delivered milk, uh, you know, driving a little truck around, delivering it, and where he'd been, what his values were, and we're just having a good talk. And I said, you know, for many of my years in the Marine Corps, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense did not always get along. And it cost us as a country. And I said, I think we have militarized our foreign policy over the last 20 years. It's not a political, a partisan statement. That's both Republican and Democrat. And I said, I want you in the driver's seat of diplomacy. And I'm more than willing to tell you all the military factors. But I do not want us fighting about it when we, we'll, let's meet and we'll talk each week and when you make, we, we'll, we'll sort it out. When we walk into the White House, we won't ask them to sort it out between us. In other words, they don't, they don't referee fight between us. We'll walk in united. And from then on, uh, he just, first of all, he just reached over the table with that big Texas hand you guys all have, you know what I mean? <laughs> and we shook on it. And every week after that, when we were both in town, uh, we'd have breakfast every week together in his office. We would talk two, three times a week, even if we were on the road overseas or something like that. And it was a great, great relationship. And it continued, by the way, with Secretary Pompeo when he came in afterwards, that tradition continued. And the, the lesson I take away from it, and the reason I wrote the book was to pass on lessons, is nothing substitutes for trust. Uh, with trust, you can do anything in this world. Without it, you can do darn near nothing. And one of the greatest honors I had was serving alongside St. Rex of Texas. It was a great team. Well, you know, we like to brag about our Texans, and there's another Texan that is in Brussels right now, Ambassador Kay Bailey Hutchison. And I thought it was so interesting in the book about how you talked about how you changed the command for the NATO transformation base mm -hmm. in Norfolk. And I'd like you to tell our audience a little bit about what the responsibility of the uh, operation in Norfolk is and how you changed the way the command was structured. Yeah, Jim, the, uh, it's the only NATO command on U.S. soil is the Supreme Allied Commander for Transformation. And I was a three-star, I was in Afghanistan, <clears throat> got a phone call from the Secretary General of NATO and he said, your president's authorized me to tell you that you're being nominated as the next Supreme Allied Commander for Transformation. 
So I went and I studied a lot about transformation and, and, and how militaries transform. But remember this, each one of those democracies loves their army as much as we love our army. In other words, what I was going to have to do is figure out what did they need to transform to do, things like cyber warfare, things like uh, irregular warfare where they have deniable things going on, like what they've done in Crimea, uh, the Russians have done in Crimea. And then I would have to go around and I'd have to get the, each of the nations to try to embrace my view of what had to happen. Don't give orders to other democracies. You've got to be able to persuade them. And so what we did was we asked for all those nations to send us their folks, their smartest strategic thinkers, and then we wrote up what we thought the problem statement was. And then we took that problem statement all over Europe and I talked to people about it. Well, one country was a bit of a problem uh, for me. They were constantly uh, going after me. And so I talked to their chief of defense and then I went in and saw President Bush. It was late in his term. He said, you need to talk to President Obama. He'd been elected, he just hadn't taken office. And I basically went in and I said, I think we ought to put the French in charge of transformation. <laughs> you know, And by doing that, we now had a European nation that was proposing how NATO had to change. It wasn't the first among equals Americans, it was now a European nation. And the result was we had more ownership of this problem. And at that point, NATO's adaptation started picking up a pace. And it's a reminder that we don't have to carry the full burden. We don't have to carry the full tax burden. We don't have to carry the full troop burden. Uh, NATO can respond. Now, they're all independent democracies and you've got to work with them. They don't, they don't just do things just uh, because I say so. But it is interesting how you can set up a process that builds trust, builds ownership, and thus gets you what you need in the end state, which is a stronger NATO alliance. So since we're on a university campus, I think we ought to talk about books. The most important six inches on the battlefield are between your ears. Mm -hmm. We've heard that you had a collection of 7,000 books. Someone asked me from the audience about how many boxes of books or how much it weighed from different posts that you went to. Where did your love of books come from and why is it so important? First of all, ladies and gentlemen, in the military, if you, if you mess up, if you're not at the top of your game, uh, I was in the infantry uh, and, and a lot of very young men are going to die. That's all there is to it. So you have not only a professional responsibility, you have a moral responsibility. Uh, the Marines recognizing this have a reading list that every Marine joining the Marine Corps, whether they're a private or second lieutenant, they have to read and they have to know them, uh, what, what the lessons in those. The idea is we don't want to keep making the same mistakes that others have made. Uh, try to make your own mistakes, not repeat the ones you could have read about and, and avoid it. And each time you get promoted, you get a new reading list. Every time you get promoted. I mean, you, you get promoted and you look in the mirror and boy, it looks pretty good. You made it, you know, and then somebody hands you another reading list. They go to work. Even the generals. You make general, boy, now you're feeling this is going to be great. I'll never eat poorly again and I'll never hear the truth again, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then in comes that corporal again and says, by the way, here's the new reading list and it's, it's, it's all this long. But the idea is, ladies and gentlemen, that you've got to do that because life is too short, especially a military life is too short to learn everything on your own. So history, it's not perfect. It will not give you the, the, the answer for every time you go into a, a situation, a challenge, but it will oftentimes tell you what, what questions to ask. And as you go through this pretty soon, as you look around the table and look at the rank on people's collars, you know you can draw a mental model and say, remember what you read in such and such a book. Well, we're going to start like that, then we're going to change it like this. But it allows people to have a mental model of where you're going. And, it, and it's been absolutely wonderful. As clearly as I can see you, I can remember orbiting over Afghanistan one night uh, after an admiral, the fleet commander, uh, ordered me to <coughs> go uh, move against Kandahar. And as I look down below, I'm going to tell you all how to make four-star general now. Um, you could see, and you do it by fighting enemy generals, dumber than a bucket of rocks, by the way. <clears throat> you could see where the fighting was going on, and then you could see this big dark area south of their center of gravity, their primary support base. 
and I knew exactly what I was going to do, and I didn't care how brave they were or how many there were. They had met, left open a back door so wide that I was going to take a thousand of my best friends there, and we were going to go right through their back door. So the reading paid off time after time after time. I'd like to think that of the hundreds of gold star letters that I had to sign, there were fewer than if I hadn't done that homework and the Marine Corps hadn't insisted that we learn that. And I was talking to a friend, a retired colonel in the Army, and he said that they just started doing that a few years ago and they were really learning from the Marines about having this required reading list. I also read that you may not have the largest library because General Kelly is also mm -hmm. a vociferous no, reader. I, I wasn't that unique. I mean, people know about me, so they say that's, that's kind of special. I was a pretty average Marine, uh, I, and that's not false modesty. I was often in just the right place, the right time, and you get to my color hair, and you know the difference between what was merit and what was good fortune. I had a lot of good fortune there, but there was a lot of others who, who uh, they read more. I mean, I, I'm not that special about that. My mother thinks I'm special, but nobody else does. Yeah. I, I think people might argue with you about that. Let me just read this one quote because I think it's just so good. If you haven't read hundreds of books, you are functionally illiterate and you'll be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't broad enough to sustain you. What are you reading now? I'm reading some great poetry by David Davenport, a Pacific Northwest poet. Um, but. Uh, I also just uh, finished rereading Earning the Rockies, very interesting book about how the geography, something Texans know something about, and the Western migration, how it changed us as a people and the effect on us even today. And then I just finished a book on appeasement about how did the democracy stumble into World War II and why did I read it? Because uh, Winston Churchill asked midway in World War II when they were still calling World War I the Great War, he was asked, what are you going to call this war the, as they were fighting in World War II because we hadn't named it that yet. And he immediately said, the unnecessary war. Can you imagine that? World War II could have been prevented if the democracies had gotten together and been strong in the 1930s and never allowed the fascists to grow. Think what that must have been for a guy like him who'd read history to know what we were fighting could have been prevented with all the heartache and, and mayhem that war created. So I'm, I, I, wanna keep, I wanna keep reading about this because I'm trying to pass this sort of thing on in various college campuses now about what young people can learn from the mistakes made in history. Let's turn to some of the situations that you talk about in the book. While you don't criticize President Trump, you certainly did have some issues with President Bush as well as President Obama. In, in your view, you had Osama bin Laden on the run, and then you were pulled back. Elaborate more on that, and who really made that decision, and why do you feel that perhaps the decision might have gone a different way if you had acted differently? It's a good question. Let me just highlight something. You have to go a long ways to find a country more willing to criticize itself, learn from its mistakes. The Americans are very self-critical. We're never satisfied. We're always trying to improve the country. People have different ideas about it. We argue like the Dickens. But part of it is we've got to be honest about what we see as policy mistakes. I do not engage in political assessments of the elected commander-in-chief, not President Bush, not President Obama. But I do talk about strategic missteps as I see them. I think that we're, we must talk about those. We cannot just cloak them in the, in the idea that patriotism means we can't look at them that way. In this case, we'd been fighting for some weeks in Afghanistan, uh, well, months actually, uh, coming up on two months, and the intelligence community <clears throat> appeared to have identified and eventually confirmed that Osama bin Laden was in one of two valleys up in Tora Bora region. Uh, we, uh, I had landed under Navy command, and then I was still under Navy command for the ships at sea, but for the guys on the shore, I was under a new commander, an Army commander. And <clears throat> I didn't know him as well as I knew my admiral, and I immediately, when I saw the intelligence, uh, history reminded me how the U.S. Army had handled the Geronimo campaign down here on our southwest border with the heliograph stations, 
And so with a quick computer scan of the terrain, we knew how to put in outposts along the Pakistan border. And then I would move assault troops up the valleys and force them, whoever was there, out. And we would find him and kill him. The, uh, the challenge was I was spending all my time just assuming the people above me had the same awareness I had and the same vision of what was going on. And I spent all my time getting my troops ready, getting the cold weather gear off the ships because we'd be operating up around 14,000 feet in the winter. Uh, you making certain the units were organized for the fight that was coming, the platoon outposts were, were organized, this sort of thing. And I forgot to keep my boss informed. And we kept waiting on the order and I'd put out a request for the order. And bottom line is, as you know, Osama bin Laden got out of Afghanistan, got to Pakistan. It took years then uh, under the, during the President Obama uh, uh, administration for the SEALs to have uh, been brought in to kill him. So I think looking back on it, what you have to remember for, uh, as a leader, you can't just be focused down all the time. You got to remember to keep your boss informed. You got to remember to bring forward your idea, make sure he agrees on what the problem is. I thought it was so simple. I forgot my boss, the army guy now, had a half dozen different issues on his plate that he was trying to deal with at the same time. So it was a, it was a lesson to myself to do a little better job on communicating, a lot better job on communicating. You know, over the years, we've had at the World Affairs Council a number of guests who were involved in Iraq and one of the questions I always like to ask is why, given all of the warnings from the intelligence agencies, military professionals, was the debathification of Iraq given the green light, which in your book you imply that it really laid the foundation for the insurgency that eventually became ISIS? Yeah, it, it was an interesting time, ladies and gentlemen, because remember we went in to get rid of Saddam Hussein. <clears throat> Now, for those who in hindsight say he had no weapons of mass destruction, at the time we went in, we believed he did. The United Nations believed he did. The Israelis believed he did. The Kuwaitis believed he did. I can go on with this, okay? I mean, why else would he be keeping the United Nations inspectors away from certain areas? His own generals knew that if they ever tried to move their units against Baghdad and depose him, that he was going to use chemical weapons on them. When we captured them during the fighting, they said, when you cross the Tigris, you're going to get hit by chemical weapons. Even his own generals believed he had them. So we move in against this army, and what we did was tried to, uh, we, what we tried to do with this phrase of no better friend, no worse enemy, to separate the people from Saddam and make sure that what we were doing was deposing him, no triumphalism, no going in, we're going to conquer you. It, to us, it was, a, it was a war of liberation for the Iraqi people. As much as it was, we're going to get rid of these weapons of mass destruction, which turned out not to be there. He had been playing the game with the uh, UN inspectors in order to give the, give the specter that he had those weapons and thus strengthen his position in power, but in fact, he did not. When we uh, took the army down, well, we did, right, as soon as we could, in the occupation phase that followed the fighting, was we tried to get them back into the barracks. We wanted them to come back in. It was hard at first, but we started paying stipends so they could feed their family. It was very little. We tried to pay them $1 bills so that they could, they could, they could actually use the dollars uh, to buy food, not, not give them like a $100 bill or something like that. We'd give it to them in ones, this sort of thing. And then we started holding... Uh, meetings with them and we, with their officers, for example. We say, what was it like to fight the Iranians? What was it like to fight us in 1991? And eventually we got to a point where we were having professional discussions. Uh, and at that point, uh, we had the unfortunate decision taken uh, to disband the army. And now you have the very people who, who've been humiliated but are starting to come back to us. They understand that we bear them no ill will that we were after, uh, you know, basically, you know, Saddam Hussein, not them. And if they didn't have blood on their hands, the Republican Guard, for example, if they didn't uh, have blood on their hands from killing their own people, that obviously they'd need an army. We weren't staying forever. And when we disbanded them, uh, we threw them out 
of uh, any chance of staying in the army, of, of any chance of feeding their families, but they were very well trained. They were actually quite well trained, and that's when we unleashed the insurgency. You and I were backstage when veterans were asked to stand, and I would not be surprised if there were some men and women who were in Fallujah. Give us your insight about where that went wrong. We, uh, we were back home in Camp Pendleton. Uh, we had been relieved. My last units were still coming in in September of 2003, uh, and the ships were at sea bringing our gear back, and I got word we're going back. Uh, that the insurgency, and now it was starting to break out because of what we'd done. And we, uh, so we went back in and took over a place called Al Anbar, the Sunni Triangle, Fallujah, Ramadi, uh, and all this stuff out in western Iraq. The Army, the 82nd Airborne, we were replacing. They gave us a very good brief. They warned us what was going on in Fallujah where the terrorists were burrowing into the society, the community itself. Uh, and they, uh, <clears throat> they basically, we had four American contractors get lost, so to speak, or certainly make a very unwise choice of route, and they, without checking in with my Marines, they drove right into downtown Fallujah. Of course, they were murdered there on the spot. Uh, they were burned, their bodies desecrated and hung from a bridge. Uh, it, the, the view, the TV shows uh, of it went around the world. Uh, and it was a tribal town, ladies and gentlemen, which means there's always someone in the town that doesn't get along with someone else, you know, just the nature of it. So what we said was, uh, let us work this. I made it very clear up the chain of command. I had full support from the Marine three-star, the Army three-star, the Army four-star CENTCOM commander. We'll get the bodies back to, to their loved ones, and we'll hunt down the guys who did it, and we'll kill every one of them. But let me do this with targeted raids. Uh, what happened uh, was, and I, I caution this in the book, that great nations don't get angry. Uh, I was ordered to attack the city. It's a city of 350,000 people. So we first had to evacuate them. I said, I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, urban combat is very, very difficult. Um, and basically I was, you know, they're not called likes, they're called orders, right? You know, I was ordered to do it. And I said, okay, uh, we'll do it, uh, but don't stop me. And so I brought in the assault battalions and they went in. Uh, the enemy fought hard at first, but rapidly they hadn't positioned enough ammunition. And I was able to also bring additional assault units in. And we were probably, although I would never have said this publicly, but in my reporting, we were getting close, I'd say within two to four days, we were going to crush them. Uh, because they were running out of ammunition. But due to the pictures in the, uh, the international press, uh, many of which, by the way, uh, were not of Fallujah, they were of other locations, but basically we got beat in the information war. I was halted, and then eventually after a long uh, discussion or negotiation with the, actually with the enemy, we were ordered to fall back, handing the enemy a big moral victory, they'd beaten the Marines, this sort of thing. Uh, I thought it was a bad thing. Uh, I, I was very strongly against pulling back once in the fight, and eventually we did have to go back in as we forecasted, and that would cost us hundreds of soldiers, Marines, sailors, killed and wounded in order to take the city down. Now they'd had time to prepare it for the fight. Uh, but the, the point is that you have to have a very clear idea of what you're doing, and then once you, once you commit to it, you, you must not back off. You simply don't, you, you have to go through right to the very bitter end. You know, there's a reason this book has been last week number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's because there's also just wonderful pearls of wisdom about management, as well as what you talk about in international affairs. And one of your... I think strengths is that you allow people to make mistakes mm -hmm. and you talk about how you made mistakes but help us understand about when you make the judgment that a mistake is not a lack of discipline and the person should not yeah. be punished that really came up in some of the court martials that you were involved with particularly when some civilians were killed at Haditha first ladies and gentlemen you cannot you cannot you must not criminalize every mistake on the battlefield. 
there, uh, there are mistakes made all the time, and I made many mistakes. And I'll give you an example. I managed to get my infantry battalion surrounded in the open desert. Now, that's almost impossible, okay? <laughs> uh, and when you see your mortar boys getting out of their vehicles, setting up four mortars pointing north and four pointing south, you know you're not von Klosswitz, you know? Um, and so uh, what, what happened to me after that, uh, we'd gotten the word to come up to a command post and I went up there and they, the colonel uh, had all those lieutenant colonels there and he said, look, they're killing the innocent people. This is in the Gulf War in Kuwait City. We've got to break through tonight. Uh, we're going right away. And so it was one of those very quick orders briefs and we're turning to leave. And the colonel said, Jim, come here. I came over and he said, you learn anything today? I said, yes, sir. He said, good, and walked off. He didn't make a big deal of it. He knew I'd made a mistake. And actually, I made mistakes and, and got in trouble at just about every rank in the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps promoted me. So I had in the back of my mind, uh, I had in the back of my mind that you have to know the difference, Jim, of what you just described. What's an, a mistake? And human beings make mistakes, especially under the pressures of combat, where the veneer of civilization gets, gets rubbed right off you in the kind of intimate killing of an infantryman. <clears throat> but what is also a lack of discipline? And there, as we used to say uh, in the Marines, uh, you're, when you're in the Naval Service, you're in the varsity. And if you run the ship aground, you're gonna be held accountable for it. So it better not be a lack of discipline. In the case of Haditha, what happened was a patrol was going through a, an enemy infested area. They set off, a, they detonate a, a, an explosive device and it kills a very popular young uh, Marine uh, in the unit and wounds several others. And the unit in, takes fire uh, and Marines go up and they're fighting their way into houses where the fire seems to be coming from and innocent civilians were killed and wounded uh, completely. Remember, this is an enemy that fights on purpose from among innocent people. They do it on purpose. And every battlefield then is also a humanitarian field. You've got to try to do this. You know, we, we adopted the, uh, from the physicians, those first do no harm. If in order to kill a terrorist, you have to shoot across a crowded marketplace, don't take the chance of killing a woman or child. Hunt him down another day and kill him, but don't, don't hurt an innocent person. In this case, they believe that they were, because they were under fire, they've already taken killed and wounded. Uh, they were fighting as best they could, and we had a lot of investigation. Matter of fact, it was almost 9,000 pages. And every weekend, every long airplane flight, when I became the, the officer responsible for holding them accountable, if in fact they had lost their discipline, I would spend reading these 9,000 pages. We'd even had one member of Congress called them cold-blooded killers on national press, national TV. So after I got done reading this, I dismissed the charges on most of them because I could tell under the conditions they were fighting, the amount of time they had to make a decision, they had done the best they could. There were a couple people, including officers above, who should have uh, caught the, the situation, but, and I held them accountable, but not those troops. In other words, if it's a lack of discipline, then you've got to be, you've got to maintain a firing squad is the way I put it. You cannot have that going on in the US military. We need disciplined troops. And I tell people, you're never gonna get it perfectly right. I love the troops, but they, they have got to do what I tell them to do. When I say first do no harm, that's what I mean. But where they made the best decision they could and under the pressure of that moment, they made a mistake, then you stand by them till the cows come home. You know, remember, even Jesus of Nazareth had one out of 12 go wrong on him, okay? So <laughs> you're never gonna have a perfect selection system, but you don't, allow, you don't allow public media or something to say you need to hang your Marines, just, you know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> I even got a phone call from a member of Congress's office who said he didn't like what I'd done, he wanted me to come back and explain it. I said, I'll be on the next plane east. I said, I read 9,000 pages of investigation. I'm sure we'll have a good, good discussion. A half hour later, they canceled my visit, you know? <laughs> but you just have to be sure that you don't mistake 
a mistake for a lack of discipline and declare war on your own troops who are doing the best they can to carry out your orders. You know, I don't think a four-star general cares too much about Facebook likes and popularity. And you talk about, <coughs> though, the importance of affection. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, it took me a long time, ladies and gentlemen. I, I had the opportunity to watch many, many units. And it often struck me, I'll just give you an example. Why would one 40-man platoon in combat, <clears throat> why would that one platoon be worth a company of 160 at times against the enemy? What made the difference? They were all recruited from the same country. They all had the same training. They all carried the same equipment on them. Uh, their leaders were almost uniformly good because in this line of work, either they're good or they're gone, and you understand that. So what was the difference? I knew there was trust and respect in those units, all those units, because if there's not, the unit just gets brittle and it won't function right because, uh, again, the stresses of combat are so difficult uh, at, for those who go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy. And eventually I stumbled onto the word because I was watching things going on and the word was affection. It was not popularity with all the favoritism that's associated with trying to be popular. It was affection for one another. I'll give you an example. I had 29 sailors and Marines around me every, every day, everywhere I was when I was a two-star commanding the, the 1st Marine Division. Over a period of four months, the fighting was so bad, we were outnumbered in many of the areas, uh, 17 of those 29 lads, <clears throat> of those sailors and Marines, would be killed or wounded around me in those four months. And so that's, and I'm not, I'm a general, I'm not in the tough fighting. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got it easy compared to the young 19-year-old Lance Corporals who are out there. <clears throat> and so, uh, I had a gunnery sergeant for an aide then because all the, all the officers had been shot who'd been my aide and they were getting too smart. They didn't want to be my aide anymore, you know? <laughs> and this gunny was just smart as a whip. He is a communicator and he was just harder than petrified woodpecker lips. You know what I mean? I mean, he's just a tough guy. And he would put them through every day before we went out of the wire, he would put them through immediate action drills. If anybody at any point didn't have the weapon in the right direction, wasn't watching, he was a tough guy, but the troops all knew he was on their side. I mean, and he could, he could be tough and, and he could say things. To do. For example, I had a kid wounded one day, painfully wounded, and he was all chalky white. He was a white kid, but he was chalky white, you know? And he's going into shock. And we, we were having trouble with the enemy. We finally got him away from us and this sort of thing. And he walked over to where we had this lad on a stretcher calling for a helicopter. He says, boy, McDonald, you sure screwed up your health record that time. Yeah. And you could just see the blood start coming back into his cheeks. He kind of smiled a little bit. He was, you know, and this was, he's that kind of guy. But the affection of those sailors and Marines for each other just carried through, even as they're getting shot and, and hit. Uh, even on our worst days, you could see them just saying they weren't going to let each other down. It was an affection for each other that just meant no matter how bad it is, I'm coming when you're in trouble. And that's, frankly, that's the reason I stuck around that low paying outfit for 40 odd years, was to serve around people like that. One of the toughest things you have to do is prepare men and women to die in the battlefield. How do you go about doing that? You talk about the extensive training, but also loyalty to each other. Elaborate on that. Well, the training has to be very tough. <clears throat> and the leaders of those units, the sergeants, the lieutenants, the captains, the ones who bring their social energy, their coaching uh, to bear because for young guys going into their first fight, it's, it's a very tough situation. Uh, they've got to be physically as tough or tougher than the people they're leading. If, they, if they're not immediately, the truth below them, sense that there's something lacking in them. So it starts... If you go to the Confucian way of how you build, uh, build character, you build it with body and then the mind and then the spirit. And in the military and the Marine Corps in particular, the spirit is considered a weapon system. If the spirit is strong, they stick with it. But I think the most important thing is <clears throat> that in the Marines, it's considered your greatest honor to fight alongside a fellow sailor or Marine. It's considered an honor to be there and that 
kind of keeps you going when the tough times hit, you're sick, you got the flu, you didn't get to sleep much the night before, by the way, you're going out. And you'd see such demonstrations of it, of, of just they knew what they were dealing with. They may have been very, very young, uh, not even old enough to buy a beer legally in Texas. They buggered sometimes figure out how to do it uh, once in a while. But uh, they would tie tourniquets, for example, real loosely around their upper legs. So if their leg got blown off with one hand, they could snap the tourniquet shut. And they would still go on patrol. How do you get it that way? I remember listening to a gunnery sergeant, I think it was, uh, as they were preparing to go out on something, they would be with us for a certain distance, and we knew we were going to get hit. It was just one of, the, one of those areas. And, he, and when he got done, he was looking at his young guys, and some of them were very new there. The, a unit had just checked in, and half of them would be going out on one of their first patrols. So just remember, he said, you don't get to choose when you're going to die, but you can choose how you're going to die. Now, you think of a gunnery sergeant, probably 30, maybe 30 years old, maybe 28, 32, talking to young guys like that, and he's considered the old man. He's the, he's the, he's the wise guy who's going to try and get them through this in one piece. But they would be honest about it. They wouldn't mince words. They, the, all the lads knew this was not a life insurance corporation. All of them were volunteers, and they were double volunteers because they were infantrymen. They had to volunteer for the Marines, then they had to volunteer for the infantry, where we take 85% of our country's casualties in the last 40, 50 years. So already you have a select group that is responsive when they have leaders like that gunnery sergeant. I think we have just another minute, and I'd like to ask you to comment on what the American experiment means to you and is that the same thing, in your view, as American exceptionalism when you discuss it? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the American experiment <clears throat> is probably an exceptional opportunity for us, Jim, in the sense that we're lucky to have this opportunity. And most countries are not exceptional enough to give that to their children. There, there's, they just don't have it. <clears throat> but what is it? It's the idea that America, that we're all working on building the country here. Right now, we're building the country. Uh, it's a noble uh, experiment. It's noble work, but it's hard work. The Constitution was designed to be difficult. Like some people say, democracy is the, the worst form of government except for all the rest we've tried, right? <laughs> well, guess what? The U.S. Constitution is probably the hardest constitution to put in practice. And why is it? We've got three co-equal branches of government that have to argue over who's boss. And they set it up that way, knowing human nature, somebody would always try to be the boss and they wanted some counterbalance. And then to really muck it up, our wonderful founding fathers made a bicameral legislature. So you got two parts of that one. And as you put that country together, you realize how hardy, how, how great that constitution is. But in its impact, we forget there's two fundamental powers or sources of power that we have as Americans as a secular country, as a nation state. One is the power of inspiration and the other is the power of intimidation. And certainly our military is part of the power of intimidation. It's also a good ambassador in many parts of the world. But the, uh, in an imperfect world, people have to know that we will fight if we are threatened. We will defend our freedoms. We will pass our freedoms intact to the next generation. We will not give them up. But it was brought home to me uh, out in the western Euphrates River Valley years ago, that same tough area where I was out with my guys, the 29 guys who were always around me. And we pulled into an outpost one night in the middle of nowhere. Out in, it's in the desert. Their job was to block the rat line, we called it, for the foreign fighters coming in from the Bekaa Valley and from Syria who were being brought in to blow up, basically blow up Baghdad. Uh, and this lieutenant and about 40 guys, he pulled in during the night inside his perimeter. Just what he wants, a major general, you know what I mean? Showing up at his little perimeter out in the middle of nowhere. So when the sun came up, he comes up, he's briefing me on what, what they're doing, where they're hitting the enemy, how many fights they've been in and this sort of thing. He says, by the way, we caught a guy laying an IED on the road that you were coming in on last night. I said, really? That's kind of personal. Um, <laughs> he said, 
he's been educated in Switzerland and England. The, the, uh, he'd already been interrogated by their intel corporal there. And he speaks perfectly good English. Want to talk to him? I said, sure, bring him over. Happy to talk to him. Uh, they bring him over, and he, the guy's obviously not having a good morning, if you know what I mean. <laughs> he's, he's got little plastic handcuffs off that the Marine, the, the young fellow who's bringing him over cuts off him uh, and sits him down there. You know, the night before, he's got his wheelbarrow and his artillery rounds and his car battery, and he's digging a hole. He looks up, and there's five guys with automatic rifles standing around him. He knows his 401k retirement program's in deep trouble at this point. <laughs> and so he's, he's uh, sitting there, and I said, what are you doing this for? You're a Sunni. We're the Marines. We're the only friends you've got out here. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to kill us? And he says, oh, you Jews, you Americans, you're here to steal the, the gas, the oil and stuff. I said, no, actually, we're not. Uh, matter of fact, I pull my wallet out every time I fill my gas tank up. So uh, you're an educated man. Why don't you just go away? And the Marine stepped forward to grab me, and he said, may I sit here for a minute? And I said, yeah, sure. So I was sitting there looking at him. We we're both sitting on the ground. And after a little bit, he says, I don't like having foreign soldiers in my country. I can respect that for crying out loud. I wouldn't want foreign soldiers in my country. That I understand. So we start talking. I gave him a cup of coffee, and he's shaking bad and stuff. Give him a cigarette, and I don't chew him out about smoking. He asked for one, so we got one for him. And, uh, and I'm asking about his family, and they lived about 10 kilometers away down on the river, had two daughters. And we're sitting there talking and everything, and he says, I guess I'm going to jail for this. I said, you're lucky you're not dead for this little stunt. But yeah, you're going to be wearing an orange jumpsuit and be down in Abu Ghraib prison for a good long time for this. And he said, General, do you think if I'm a model prisoner someday, I could immigrate to America? <laughs> think about that. Think about that. He would love to be sitting where you're at right now. He'd love to have his two daughters in college in Texas right now. So on the days when you think the world's going to Hades in a handbasket, just remember there, there are people out there that the inspiration of America can reach halfway around the world and touch their heart, touch their head. And don't lose track of how great we are unless we declare war on each other. Abraham Lincoln, 1858, at the Young Men's Lyceum, is given a speech, and he says, no combined army of Europe and Asia and Africa could land on our shores, even if they were under Bonaparte, and cross the Blue Ridge Mountains and drink one mouthful of water out of the Ohio River. We'd stop them. They couldn't do it. He said, if this is going to die, by this he means America, 1858, not even president yet. He said he's going to die by suicide. So let's remember to keep our fundamental friendliness, our respect for each other. No one's an enemy of the people if they have a different idea about America. No one is a terrorist if they think differently about America. Let's try and figure out a way to govern a country and unify it. Let's have good, raucous elections. They don't have to be civil all the time. We're, we're pretty upfront people. But after the election's over, let's come back together and start solving problems, show respect for each other. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Good question, Jim.